copy of God's Word, and I hope that you do. Please go ahead and turn with me to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, um, we will uh, begin our journey through 2 Samuel, finished 1 Samuel uh, a couple of months ago, I think about three months ago, and took, some, took a break to find some time to, uh, to look at what it exactly looks like for us to be and remain a healthy church, and so now we'll start through um, 2 Samuel. And to that note, um, I'd originally planned on um, <clears throat> reading uh, um, uh, just one verse, but I think we're going to read uh, the first 12 verses together. Um, and uh, won't, uh, won't do this as normal with, with going verse by verse through them as I normally do since we're just doing overview this morning. But we'll get ourselves an overview of, of what Second Samuel is all about and the hope, uh, the hope that uh, points us to Christ ultimately here in this book. So if you have a copy of God's Word and you have turned to 2 Samuel chapter 1, if you're physically able to do so, I do want to ask one more time that you would stand with me as we honor the reading of God's holy and written Word. So 2 Samuel chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 through 12, and I pray that all of us would hear the word of the Lord that's given to us this morning. First Samuel chapter, or 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had abode two days in Ziklag, it came even to pass on the third day that, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes <clears throat> and earth upon his head. And so it was when he came to David that he fell to the earth and did obeisance. And David said to him, From where come you? And he said to him, Out of the camp of Israel, and I escaped. And David said to him, How went the matter? I pray you, tell me. And he answered, That the people are fled from the battle, and many of the people are fallen and dead, and Saul and Jonathan his son are dead also. And David said to the young man told, that told him, How know you that Saul and Jonathan his son are dead? And the young man that told him said, as I happened by chance upon Mount Gilboa, behold, Saul leaned upon his spear, and lo, the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me, and he called to me, and I answered him, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I answered, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me again, Stand, I pray you, upon me, and slay me, for anguish has come upon me, because my life is yet whole in me. So I stood upon him and slew him, because I was sure that he would not live after that he was fallen. And I took the crown that was upon his head and the bracelet that was on his arm, and have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold on his clothes and rent them or tore them, and likewise all the men that were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they were fallen by the sword. Let's pray. Father, uh, the text that is set before us this morning uh, is your word. And so now help us to think about uh, where, where we find ourselves and how this points us ultimately to Christ. And Father, our prayer to this morning is, is that you would be honored, you would be glorified as we think about all of, all of these, uh, these truths as we think and put before us the word of God. Help us, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So in our society, it seems that we are or maybe have become obsessed with all things that are prequels, remakes, pre-prequels, sequels, and all of the rest. I mean, we are obsessed with all of these things. We, I think because we are obsessed as a society with a good story. We like good stories, 
Um, growing up in eastern southeastern Kentucky, I know that uh, stories were handed down to to family from family member to family member throughout many many generations, and so the story stories were very important to us. Um, maybe that's true with with the way you grew up too. I, I don't know, but it does seem to be that as a society, this is where we find ourselves. We find ourselves obsessed with a good story. We find ourselves with 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 good um, the importance of good stories and in the integrity of good storylines. We want our stories to flow, and yet we want to to get more and more insight, and perhaps even more and more background on the favorite characters that we read, whether that is in the the form of books or movies or. Um, comic books or mangas or anything else like that. The reality is, is we want to, to be enthralled. We want to be enthralled. Our minds engaged, our hearts engaged, and we want to know, we want to know the heroes and the villains and how things ultimately turn out in life. Uh, I, I think it's, it's much the same. And 2 Samuel for us then serves as a, as a sequel. I mean, it serves as a sequel. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you know this, but First and Second Samuel was actually always just Samuel. Um, and it wasn't until it wasn't until the Septuagint uh, around 285 to, to uh, between 285 and 246 BC that the two that the one book was severed in half and became went from one book to, to two books. Uh, once the Old Testament was translated into Latin in AD 382 by Jerome, uh, known as the Latin Vulgate, um, it was it was kept. And so ever ever since we we have just had two books, but in reality. From the very beginning, they've always been just one book, uh, just one book of Samuel, even though we call them First and Second Samuel. But the First and Second Samuel serve to form one historical narrative for us about the nation of Israel. They form they form for us uh, about how uh, how the lives of men like Samuel, David, Saul, and all the rest lived, and how they worked, and how they they honored or dishonored God, and how they dishonored their people. Uh, we cover, we have names like Nathan, Saul, Samuel, or Nathan, Samuel, Gad, and all the rest, right? That they, these names are, are not dissimilar to us because we, as we read, we read of how these men shaped the nation of Israel. We read about how God working through these men worked in a mighty way to glorify his, himself through his people. From a historical standpoint, it seems that the book was compiled by three main prophets, Samuel, Nathan, and Gad. Um, although it does bear Samuel's name just because he was the most influential in the life of Saul and then David himself. Ultimately, the, the book of Samuel is important because God promised that through, and as we'll see as we go through this, that through the line of David, God would bring forth and birth the Messiah. He would bring forth that which was prophesied of in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That, that which was prophesied of so long ago, God would finally do. And here again, God revisits his promise, not only through Genesis 3.15 and later through Abraham, but now through the line and the lineage of David. Although David was certainly a flawed man, as we'll see. David uh, was, uh, David was, was quite a flawed man. But what separated him from Saul was that Saul made excuses David repented, and there's a big difference between those two. And therefore, God blessed and continued to bless David in the line of David uh, through the time of Jesus' ultimate coming and, and being the, the one who fulfilled the promise of God through, to David. And so we, as God's people, then, I think it's important for us to see how God has, through his integrity, kept his promises 
God is a promise keeper. God doesn't break his promises. God doesn't, God doesn't go off on a whim and say, oh, you know, I know I broke this or I know I made this promise, but guess what? I rethought things and so we're not gonna, I'm not going to do this anymore, right? God isn't human. He's not fickle like sometimes we are um, where we may not even want to break promises. But unfortunately, unfortunately, we do find ourselves at times having to break promises. God doesn't break his promises, God will never break his promises, and this is why we can look to him and trust him, is that when, when everything else is going haywire in our lives or anywhere else, Christ is, Christ is solid and he's truthful and he's the rightful ruler of the, king, of the kingdoms of the nations. And he is putting those nations, he is, he is plowing those nations under through the preaching of the gospel. This is why we're called to go to all the nations and preach the gospel and make disciples of all people is because God is, through the gospel, causing men and women to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, ultimately, to the glory of God the Father. So, how do we get, what do we get from Samuel? I think Samuel, a second Samuel in particular, can be divided up into three main parts. As we, as we go through second Samuel, I think you'll see this. I think Samuel, second Samuel can be broken up into verses one, or chapters 1 through 8. Uh, where David is said to be a man after God's own heart. It's very clear. David is a man after God's own heart. David then presents to us a type of righteousness that is ultimately fulfilled only in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But in chapters 1 through, uh, 2 Samuel 1-8, through 8, David is great. David has hit his high point. David is following Christ, uh, the Lord. David is honoring the Lord. David is serving the Lord faithfully. He has finally come out of the wilderness. He has finally been able to, to be a free man and to live freely. And now he is doing exactly what he always wanted to do, serving God, honoring God through his, through his life and through his, through his ministry to God's people as being their righteous king. However, as is the case with most kings and most, most men, most women, most people, 2 Samuel, 9, 2 Samuel 9 through 20, if we had to put a title to it, would be a servant under God's rod. You say, well, now, why would he be a servant under God's rod? Because unlike the Lord Jesus, who would come and be David's greater son, who would fulfill all the promises to us uh, as God's people, ultimately, David would fail. David failed. David was weak. He was captured. He was, he was captured by his own lust, and he, as a result, failed. And as a result, God brought his chastisement upon the nation of Israel, upon David and upon nation, the nation of Israel. Because, you see, our sin never just affects us, does it? You see, our, David's sins ultimately sins against uh, and with Bathsheba. But his sin ultimately has greater consequences because from that point, David's, David's trajectory of his reign is not upward, it's downward. And David's sin against and with Bathsheba uh, and was ultimately against God, and from which that point stands, David and his children go down, 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 until you have all sorts of crazy, wicked things in which David refuses to even punish you have a half-brother raping his, his half-sister, and David refuses to punish them. Ultimately, Absalom tries to, or Absalom does usurp the, king, uh, the king's authority and becomes king over the nation of Israel for a short period of time. And this is all God's chastisement upon David and upon his rule. David's sin and, and God's chastisement. But in all of this, in 2 Samuel 21 through 24, as David's reign begins to wind down, ultimately, we have a kingdom in God's hands. 
which reminds us that no matter how great of a leader may be, or no matter how great their sin may be, ultimately it's not them that we should ever trust in. It's in Christ that we should ultimately find our hope and our trust. We should ultimately look to Christ. Our leaders, if they're godly, biblical leaders, they should point us to Christ and not themselves. Ultimately, perhaps themselves, insofar as they follow Christ, but, but that we need to look to the one who created all all men, all women in his image. And we need, to honor, we need to honor those whom God has created in his image. And so ultimately, not only is Israel in God's hands, but every one of us, you and I here today, are in the hands of Almighty God. There's not a single one of us who, who are here by our, own, by our own right of sovereignty or rule or decisions. God is ultimately in control. God is ultimately sovereign. God is ultimately glorifying himself through his people and through us and bringing, bringing us here even this very moment. It's amazing that as we think about this, we are here by God's plan and God's design on this day, in this time, as God has designed it, right down to the very seat that we're sitting in. It's amazing. It's an amazing thought that God is ultimately in control when, when our leaders go astray and when our leaders go haywire. God is ultimately in control. God is ultimately sovereign over all things. So as we think about this, what are some of the things I think that begin to emerge from 2 Samuel well, as we read, right, Second uh, Samuel picks up where the end of First Samuel drops off, or where the first the end of First Samuel uh, ends. But as in First Samuel, I think Second Samuel continues on several of the themes. One is that the so- is that of the sovereignty of God, like God is sovereign. There, there is no doubting this. There's no doubting the sovereignty of God. God chooses and guides David's life and rule as the king of Israel. Right? God, God is sovereign. God sovereignly brought Saul's life to the end that he promised. Right? God ultimately brought Saul to the end that he promised when Saul visited the witch of Endor, right? the, the necromancer of Endor. Right? God said, Saul, you're going to die because of this. Um, and so he does. As we, as we left off 1 Samuel, he dies. He was, he was killed on Mount Gilboa. And we find that as chapter, uh, 2 Samuel picks up, we see the David lamenting and mourning over, over a king. And I, I would say that this has much to say to us as well. Saul was, was, a, was not a great king at the very end, and yet David did not exalt himself against Saul at any point. I think it's great, great, great reminders to us of of how we should honor those that God has placed over us, even when they act in ways that are contrary to God's law. And that is to recognize the sovereignty of God, that God is sovereign by his plan, by his rule. God has established kings and kingdoms and nations for his glory, whether that be for the glory of his, their, their ultimate dis, dis, uh, dispersion or through ultimately by bringing them through in repentance. But God sovereignly does all things. I would say this to you. There's another thing that does emerge, particularly in the first eight chapters of 2 Samuel. And that David, David is a prototype, if you will, of Christ. David genuinely, particularly in the first eight chapters of 2 Samuel, serves as a, as a really clear picture of, of the greater king who would come. The greater king who would come. And the greater king who would, be, who, would, who would not just be a man after God's own heart, but would be God clothed in humanity, who would serve to die on the cross as our king so that he would purchase a peculiar people, particular people for his own glory, made up of every tribe and race and tongue and nation throughout all of the world, that Christ is going to be glorified. 
that we are going to see great, great numbers of people before the throne of God because of the work of Christ from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we are going to worship together there before the throne of God for the glory of God. And so David serves as a prototype, if you will, of that type of a future, the future of the king who would come, who would purchase people for God's own glory, not from one particular group like the nation of Israel, but now from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, uniting them in one people. And one people. And so in this, God then shows us, I think, David is a type of Christ insofar as God pledges to David an eternal covenant, what's commonly known as the Davidic covenant. And the Davidic covenant centers on several key promises. And particularly, if you're curious, as it happens in 2 Samuel 7, and it's just a further expansion on the God's covenant that he made with Abraham and but the Davidic covenant really centers on some key promises here. And these promises are, are threefold. First, God reaffirms the land promise. He reaffirms the land promise that he made with Israel under the Mosaic and the Abrahamic covenants. Again, uh, and this is found in, uh, let me just point this out to you real quick. This is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10, this is what the Lord says, this is what Yahweh says to, the, to, to David. He says, moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. We ultimately know that this was fulfilled um, through the conquest, but God is just reaffirming God's plan for his people to, to live in the nation of Israel, to live in this place, this geographic region. But God also promises something else. God promises in his covenant with David that David is going to have a son who will have another son who will have another son and ultimately will be fulfilled in the greater and greatest son, his ultimate son, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And God promises that David will have a son to succeed him as the king of Israel and that this son, would ultimately, who would ultimately be Solomon, right, would build a temple for the promises uh, to, to God as he, as he promised. And lastly, I think, I think it's, it's important that we see, though, as we're, as we're thinking about the covenant, God's covenant with David, God ultimately promises, as I said, to give David the greater son, the Messiah. And, and, and look, with, look what it says here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13. This is, this is important for us, I think, to see this. And that is, he, he, it says, um, And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, did Solomon live forever? No, absolutely not. But who dis? The King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. God promises this. God has given this. And God has fulfilled this, as we'll see throughout, the, throughout as we make connections in 2 Samuel. But before I go any further, as is my, as is my case when I preach through the, the Old Testament, where do we see Jesus in all this? I've sort of made mention of this, sort of, right? I mean, I've sort of made mention of, of Jesus, David being a prototype or a foreshadowing of, of Jesus ultimately um, and his kingly rule. But where do we see Christ throughout 2 Samuel? Well, I think we see David, um, I know that we see David as a model king, at least in the first eight verses, who brings the blessings to the nation of Israel as, as he follows his, his Lord as he follows Yahweh, at least until he falls into sin with Bathsheba in chapter 11. And until his sin, David does, I think, accurately foreshadow Jesus Christ as the ultimate good king, as the great king, as the good king, and the, the need of the great king who was to come. 
However, unlike David, Jesus Christ never sinned and acts for the glory of the Father and our and the good of his people as well as the blessing of his people. So, God is ultimately at work through Jesus to bless the nations through the gospel. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the nations receive great blessing. And David, in that sense, serves as a, as, a, as, a, as a foreshadow, if you will, of the greater king who would come, who, would, who will one day ultimately rule the nations and plow them under through the preaching of the gospel. Second, I think we see Christ and David's rule, initially at least, uh, as a picture of a righteous king. Justice flows freely in David's kingdom in the nation of Israel, at least to the first eight chapters, nine chapters. To the first, those first chapters, David is a just king who loves justice, who loves Yahweh, who serves God, who honors God until he sins. And then, well, I can't tell them that they're sinning because all they can point back and say, well, look what you did with Bathsheba. And so at least David's rule initially was a just and good picture of the ultimate good and righteous king who would come. And until his sin, David does foreshadow Christ, who is the righteous king of heaven and earth. And unlike David, however, King Jesus never sins and always acts righteously and justly. And he purchased his people upon the cross for the glory of the Father and for the honor of his great name. And one day, every nation will bow to King Jesus. And it is interesting that David, while he does repent, David's reign is never the same. David is never the same after his sin. And as I said, David's trajectory of, of his rule and reign only points us downward. And I think in this, I think it does point for us, again, the need to realize of the coming of Christ, the perfect king who will not give in, who does not give in to sin or temptation, but is the perfect king who rules us well. And I think lastly, when we see, when we see Christ here uh, in, in 2 Samuel, you know, David never says anything bad about Saul. Never, not once, does David ever say anything bad about Saul. He leaves him in God's hands. Even when the news of his ultimate vindication comes and Saul is dead on a hill at Mount Gilboa, what does David do? David instead doesn't start singing praises. Thank you, God, for killing all my enemies. What does he say? He begins to lament and he begins to weep. Now, now certainly it doesn't mean that, that uh, when unrighteousness is judged, we shouldn't, we shouldn't rejoice. David certainly did when unrighteousness was taken care of. But David's first thought wasn't that he was vindicated. It was to weep over the fact that God brought justice finally upon King Saul like he had promised. And I think it's, it's important for us to keep in mind that in this David really does foreshadow the grace that is ours through Christ. And that is that Christ is a perfect Savior. He does not, he does not recall the sins of our past. If we truly repent, we are, we are forgiven and free through, in Christ and through Christ. God forgives us and comes to us and ministers to us in grace and by grace through his mercy. And he, he shows us his grace and his love doesn't mean that we'll never have to deal with our sin, right? We have to deal with our sin. That's part of what, what we're called to do is to deal with our sin, to repent, to make things right with others if we have sinned against them, to honor Christ in this. And King David, 
King David never mentions Saul's failures and sins. He always allows God to deal with them. He rejoices when God's justice rolls down. But he does not ever rejoice over his enemies. And I think in this, Christ is clearly seen in that Christ died for us when we were yet sinners, as Paul tells us in Romans. But in all of this, let me get down to, I think, the four things. Four things I want to I ultimately show you and then we're done. Um, four, first, four truths about God and then four confidences that I think for Second Samuel brings us to have in God. So what are the four truths that I think Second Samuel breeds for us to understand? Well, first it's this. The first, the first truth is this. God rules over his people and the nations as his supreme ruler. We do not doubt this or presume to elevate ourselves to God's place as head of the nations. There is, this is clear in 2 Samuel 22, 2-16, as David's view as contrasted with Saul's. And I think, unfortunately, some within the local church have chosen to follow Saul's example rather than David's. If we're not very careful, this can become a reality. Make excuses for why we don't deal with things. Make excuses for why we don't do things the way the Bible tells us. Make, make excuses rather than dealing with sin or dealing with issues as they arise. And so as God's sons and daughters, we bow the knee to King Jesus. Let me say this, that while it is true that there will come a day that Jesus ultimately shows forth his, and shows forth his, his rightful rule, Jesus is reigning now. Jesus isn't waiting to reign. Jesus rules over the nations now. And Jesus isn't waiting to reign. He is ruling. He is ruling today. Now, that doesn't mean that everywhere we look, right, even in our own nation, that, that it looks like King Jesus is ruling. But Jesus is ruling, and he is plowing the nations under by the gospel. By the gospel, God is at work I think there's a second truth that we see clearly throughout 2 Samuel, and that is simply this. God is righteous. God is righteous. God is good. God is virtuous. God is upright. God is irreproachable. So much so that even, even when David sins and has his astronomical catastrophic failures that he has throughout his rule, it causes people not to look at David and say, hey, what a great king, but to look at, at the king, at Yahweh, their true king, and say, what a good and gracious God we have. We confess our sin as David confessed his sin, though, when, when we're confronted with it. We don't rationalize or deny it, but we openly repent of our sin. And in contrast, we don't look like the former king Saul who makes excuses. We look more like our king who, who tells us in 1 John chapter 1, verses eight, uh, verse 8, you know, if we are, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness right, if we confess our sins. And I think in that, we see that God is the good and righteous ultimate king of the nation of Israel, as he is our old good and ultimate and merciful king. And that brings us to, to, I think, a third truth, which is that God is merciful. And so we look to the God of heaven and see him as merciful because this is how he's chosen to reveal himself. Is God holy? Absolutely. Is God righteous? Yes. Is God, uh, is God uh, loving? Yes. But ultimately, God has revealed through the gospel all these things through the provision and the work of his son, Jesus Christ. God knew, God knew that David would ultimately only be able to point to Christ. And it was King Jesus who would have to come, 
who would have to come and would control the, the nations, who would reign upon the throne of the nations. David knew that he was in God's grasp of mercy because God did not kill him when he sinned. And God is truly merciful to us in that God doesn't, when we sin and are rebellious, he doesn't just up and just kill us. God is merciful insofar as the Son, the Son of God has taken the wrath of God upon himself for us. But I think fourthly, there is a, there's a fourth truth that, that does come shining through in 2 Samuel, and that is that, that God's will is always best. God's will is always best. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is our desire should be, must be, always to do the will of God. And to do the will of God is achieved in our lives and the life of our nation and the, the nations and the church as we give ourselves over to the word of God. If we want to know what God has to say, we need to read the book. Right? We need to read his book. We need to honor Christ by reading his book. God God has given us exactly what he wants from us. Does that mean he tells us everything? No. He doesn't tell us 2 plus 2 equals 4 or, or any number of things, right? But he does give us the wisdom, and he does give us the, the, the worldview that helps us to interpret life correctly through Scripture. We can understand correctly 2 plus 2 equals 4 because of God and because of Christ. And so God places wisdom at our feet through scripture should i know should i marry this person should i not should i go to this school should i not should i engage with this position or this job or this 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 endeavor should i not because god through his word reveals his wisdom to us and we apply his wise principles to our lives and then i think ultimately second samuel does give us four confidences in god Right, four truths about God, but four confidences in God as well. And that's this. God's purpose cannot and will not be defeated. Period. God's purpose cannot and will be not will not be defeated because God is sovereign. The purpose of God in this world will be done. No nation will, will escape the rule of God. No nation will escape bowing the knee to Christ. No nation will, will ultimately escape God's, God's sovereign rule and justice and the bringing about of ultimate justice to the nations. No nation, no king, no, no, no leader will escape this. But I would also say this. Not only will no nation escape the rule and reign of Christ, but that it is in Christ... That as we look to Christ, our confidence being in Christ, God blesses the Christian family. God blesses the Christian church. God blesses his people who seek to bring the nations under the rule and reign of Christ, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because however, whatever else we may disagree on, here is the reality. Jesus wins. We don't serve a defeated king. We don't serve a king who is going, who's wringing his hands, just hoping that his plans work out. We serve the, uh, the awesome and sovereign God of the universe who brings about his purposes and plans perfectly. He uses imperfect instruments in his hand to bring about the perfect plans of Almighty God. I would also say this, God's power is a second confidence that we can have, I think, with, as we look through 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel, as we, as we read through the book, we see that God's power is sufficient. 
God's power is sufficient for our needs as much as it was for David's needs. The power for obedience, the power for worship, the power for, the power for anything that we do in this life to be for the glory of God. Because Christian, we're not, we're not exempt from this. We need the Holy Spirit to help us. Paul tells us in Galatians 5.25 that we must walk with the Spirit. We can't do this stuff on our own. And I think third, David's, God's kingship and rule is, the, is not only the pattern for David and for Israel, but let me go a little bit further and say this. God's kingship and rule is the pattern for all governments of the world. 2 Samuel 23, 3-4 is very clear. God has established the human government. And whether that be in the form of the family, whether it be the husband, wife, and children, you know, make up, the government, national leaders, state leaders, local leaders, citizens within a particular nation or a group of people, right, ethnicity, God has set up our, our leaders to, to, to work and to pass lawful, good law ordinances and laws in our society. And we are called to live honorably as Christians within our society. And we're called to, we're called to call upon our nation to punish evil and honor good. And so we are called to this, to this reality, realizing that government is, not, uh, is, not, is, is, is given by God. It's not a result of the fall. Government was prior to even the fall. Church, then, we as God's people, whether we're church leaders or church members, within the local church, the pastors are essential to the health of the local church. Believers are to honor and to, to, to respect their, 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 their leaders within the local church and to submit to one another and walk in, as we walk in humility together. But let me say this, because I think a lot of Christians treat not only, not only government, but let me say this, I think a lot of Christians treat even our business endeavors and our employment and all these other things as, as, if, as if God somehow doesn't care about this. But you see, God's rule and reign and our confidence is that God does have much to say about even how we employ ourselves and do business among ourselves. That is that our employers are challenged to act with impartiality and care for those that they employ. Ultimately, they are called upon, employers themselves, Christian employers, we are called upon to pattern our behavior after God himself, who is, their, who is our authority. And employees are responsible to honor God in a way that they serve. They are called to do their work enthusiastically and for the glory of God. My goodness, how this would change radically uh, the, the way, I think, the way we think about life in general. If we have a, a, this view of, 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 of Christ for all of life in our, set before us, that in everything we do, we're called to glorify God. In everything we do, we're called to honor Christ. In everything we do, we're called to make much of King Jesus. How this would transform my life, your life, our lives as a, as a church, as a nation, if we bowed the knee to King Jesus. Ultimately, then, let me point this out. Jesus, then, is the greater David, who as the perfect king now rules and calls everyone, everywhere, to repent to repent and to flee to Christ. He calls the nations to bow the knee. And as, as Christians, we have Jesus as our example and our pattern for honoring one another, for honoring Christ, for not showing partiality in any part of life, but for honoring Christ and loving Christ in all that we do. This is how the nations will be one. 
The nations will be one as we preach the hope of the gospel. Let us be faithful to do that. Let's pray. Father, my prayer this morning in our time as we've, as we've had uh, just our time together, that Christ would be glorified in us. That there would be no partiality within our hearts or minds, but that, that everything that we do, business, governmental leadership, uh, um, employment, whatever the case may be, God, in, in all of our life, that Christ would be set out before us as our example and that we would follow Christ, that we would call out sin, we would call the nations to bow the knee, to humble themselves to King Jesus, and that, that, that mercy may roll down, that justice may roll down among the nations as they bow the knee to Christ. So help us now as we look to your example and your leadership, your kingship in this, in this world. Let us pattern our families and our, ourselves and, and, and everything we do after Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name.